When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. We'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, attraction, dating, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And we've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we get guys from all over the world. So no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. We're sold out a few months in advance. Get into Touch ASAP by phone or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com, to get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with Kabir Segal, the Darwin of Dollars, author of Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. We're talking neuroeconomics, the brain science of how our brains react to money, how anticipation of having more is more powerful than actually having, and how our genes even regulate how we spend money and even our credit score. So if you're broke, blame your parents. All this and more on this episode of The Art of Charm. Tell us what you do in one sentence. I'm the author of Coin, The Rich Life of Money, and How Its History Has Shaped Us. And before you wrote Coined, The Rich mm-hmm. Life of Money, which I see what you did there, uh, you were the vice president in emerging market equities at J.P. Morgan. What is that? So basically, I was advising institutional money managers to invest uh, money in emerging markets. So my job is literally traveling all around the world, over 30 countries, and finding investment opportunities in China, like telecom companies in China, gold companies in South Africa. And then conversely, I would bring the management companies in those emerging market countries to America and uh, try to source investments to try to get them to list their stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. So I was really sitting between very significant capital flows between US money managers and emerging market opportunities. I worked on Wall Street for a while as well, Pardon me if this is a little insulting, but this is like 
part of the problem, right? <laughs> when you're talking about finance and Wall Street and stuff like that, it's kind of like not value from nothing like I was doing, which was mortgage-backed securities, but it's a close maybe second or third because it seems very removed from delivery of, of actual value. Depends where you're doing it and what type of finance you're doing. Like I would be in Bangladesh, actually frontier markets in Bangladesh, in Nigeria, in Mongolia. We would finance you know, construction projects and infrastructure projects. In, in one place, we were in Malaysia, and we put an uh, investment at work in a fishery where thousands of people were put to work. I got involved in investment banking almost kind of by accident. I didn't stay there for very long. I mean, I was there maybe eight years. I got out of it because I knew I wanted to take that skill set and, and do something else with it. But I got into investment banking for the skills because at the end of the day, you need to learn how to make money before you give it away and before you want to do charitable aspects. Got it. Yeah, and fair enough. Infrastructure projects do tend to be a little bit more rewarding than, hey, let's figure out how to list a bunch of real estate properties that aren't built yet in a company in another market, uh, which is literally what we were kind of doing when I worked there. So I guess I probably saw some of the real downside of Wall Street in instead of what you were doing, which those types of projects. But you've written five books, Coined, Walk in My Shoes, A Bucket of Blessings, Wheels on the Tuk-Tuk. Did J.P. Morgan just not keep you busy? I mean, you wrote five books. What the heck? I wrote five books. I uh, joined the military while I was at J.P. Morgan. I wrote an opera. I've done a lot of stuff while I was at J.P. Morgan. And because I figured out how to do my job in a few hours a day, the company flew me all around the world to learn about different places. And so I said, while I'm here, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna use it while I can. And when the time is right for me to go, I'll go. And so literally for my last book, Coined, I would wake up in the morning, I would write, and then my office was located just a few blocks from the New York Public Library. I would go to the New York Public Library at lunch. And then sometimes I just wouldn't come back because I was one of the biggest revenue producers on my desk at J.P. Morgan. And my manager was cool with it. He said, listen, I'll judge you on results. And we had an agreement. Let's judge me on results and, I, and I'll take care of the rest. So I learned how to sort of make a corporate job uh, work for me. Yeah, I mean, you joined the U.S. Navy Reserve, speechwriter on the presidential campaign, Council on Foreign Relations, Grammy-winning producer, it's like you don't sleep, you know? So, and no pressure, but this show better be pretty awesome with a resume like that. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Excellent. So first of all, psychology and money are two awesome topics we love to cover on this show. So psychology of money, especially when it comes down to the science of it, neuroscience, cognitive biases. I mean, you're speaking our language here big time. Yeah, so I started to write this book because... I started working at J.P. Morgan just months before the credit crisis began, and I asked myself sort of a biological question. What is happening in the mind? What is happening in the brain when we think about money, when we deal with money? So when people are listening to this podcast, when I say the word money, when you think about money, there's likely an increase in skin conductancy. In other words, there is an electrical current going through your skin. You're getting a jolt of excitement um, sent through your body just to the mere mention of the word money. And so I looked at this further, and there's indeed a field called neuroeconomics, which is basically brain scientists that study financial decision-making. And so this is a pretty nascent field because MRIs really came into, into being in the late 90s. And um, they found that they've taken people who are high on cocaine, taken brain scans of, people, of coke addicts, and then they compared it to people who are about to make money, who are about to win money. And they found that the brain scans were identical. 
the part of the brain that activates is deep within the limbic system, deep within the evolutionary part of the brain. It fires up. It's called the nucleus accumbens, the nucleus accumbens. And this, this um, uh, part of the brain just goes crazy at the thought of money. Not just that. Uh, in another study, brain scientists asked heterosexual men to look at pictures of naked women, dead bodies, and money. And what got the most activation in the nucleus accumbens? What got the most excitement? Please don't say dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> for some people, maybe, but, uh, but not for the most people. For most people, it was money. And so I found that there's indeed a biological, not just psychological, but, but you know, our psychology is often governed by what's going on in our, in our gene pool. I think it's because people know that if you have lots of money, you can buy both dead bodies and naked women. <laughs> you could. It's a weird fetish. If the movies, yeah, not at the same time, but you never know, according to the movies I've been watching. You know, the interesting thing about the, about the study, and it maybe applies to even, even to a podcast, is it's a nuanced finding, which is not just the receiving of money, the winning of money, or the touching of money, it's the anticipation of gain, right? So ah. when you are hosting your podcast, and you can say, oh, coming up, we have, you know, Kabir, that may be more exciting than the podcast itself. I hope, I hope that's not the case for me. We'll see, right? The anticipation of having you on the show was better than actually having you on the show. That's true for many guests, however. <laughs> That's very true. Um, but you're right. And wh why do you think that is? I mean, it seems like having would be better than anticipation. Do we know why that is? Because, I mean, I'd rather have money in my pocket than look at it through a window. Yeah, I think it's just it's part of the reward circuitry is that the idea of winning, the idea of a prospect of gain, somehow in our, in our evolutionary wiring is the idea of winning something, something that you don't have. It's probably like a survival mechanism, to be honest with you. Yeah, it has to be. Motivating or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. You know, I went to over 25 countries in researching this book, and I started my quest in the Galapagos Islands to look at the origin of money. And why did I do that? Because I was looking at sort of that's for Charles Darwin, not to get too scientific on. I was going to say, you're like the Darwin of dollars. Yeah, I like that. Man, I should, I should write an op-ed on that. That's you a should. Good one. Just link back to the Art of Charm. No big deal. <laughs> it's all yours. Yeah, you can, oh, we'll, we'll copyright it. So I, I went there and I, I went with a couple of marine biologists and we studied different ecosystems. And why did we do that? Because we, we studied how different species, how different animal species have symbiotic relationships with each other. Like right now, you have a symbiotic relation with the 100 million intestinal bacteria in your intestinal tract. You're, you're breathing out carbon dioxide. You're having an exchange with the plant. And so sure enough, I found that there's actually genes that we have that regulate how we spend money, how we deal with money. There's actually one gene that we have. It's called the COMT gene, COMT gene, the scientists sometimes call it. And there's two variants of it. And that are sort of evenly dispersed within the population. And if you have one variant of it, you're more likely to be risk averse, to have a higher credit score, to have fewer credit lines. And if you have the other variant of it, it's just the opposite. To the tune of about 97 points on your credit score, about 20% of your credit score is influenced by your genetics. And uh, they controlled for all kinds of things like your, your financial literacy and demographics and so forth. They found that Sure enough, that your genes are manifesting themselves in your financial decision making. They've even found this to be true, Jordan, in uh, in twin studies. Identical twins have the same genotype, have the same genes, and when they've separated them over long periods of time, 
they found that even identical twins invest in a similar manner. Really? Yeah. So your genetics influence your financial decision making. So there's like there's like a businessman gene and then there's like a rapper gene. Exactly. There's a risk averse gene and a risk taking gene. You probably know who you are. I mean, you probably know your own proclivities, but I guess the moral of the story is if if you're not a very good investor, if you're not very good with money, you can always blame your parents because it's their gene pool after all. Wow. Well, good. I mean, I guess I should blame my parents for giving me good investment and financial decision-making genes because I'm basically a wimp when it comes to that kind of thing. I have a higher risk tolerance elsewhere. Otherwise, I wouldn't be running my own business here. But (laughs) I think obviously things can override that because my parents are much more conservative in terms of risk than I am. But when it comes to what we do with our money, I guess it's similar. We're similar there. So it's not the only factor, but the fact that genetics influence anything with financial decision-making is kind of incredible because typically we would think this would be a matter of nurture, not nature, where, oh, your parents were foolish with money. That's where you get it because you saw that. It was a bad example, but it could actually be genetic. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the only thing. Like in some of these studies, like you can triumph over your genetics. You can learn. If you think you're risk averse, you can sort of learn different hacks to make yourself better. You can make lists and follow all kinds of how-to advice to be better with money. But it is definitely a tendency. And there's all kinds of things that affect our genetics over the course of time. Like even if you look at the weather on a cloudy day, when you're seated outside at a restaurant, for example – Studies have found that you tip more money because the weather puts you in a better mood. You're more likely to be thankful for the service that you got. A lot of waiters started picking up on this trend. Yeah, and so if you're seated inside, you don't tip as well. So that's why when you go to a restaurant, waiters oftentimes will want to seat you outside. Those that listen to this show will now do that no matter what. Yeah, Yeah. there you go. But they've actually found this study, Jordan, uh, shows up in the markets. One thing we have really good data on over the last 80 years are stock market returns. And we also have really good data on weather patterns. And so they looked at 26 markets around the world, 26 markets have stock exchanges, New York, London, so forth. And they found on sunny days, the market outperforms about 25% annualized versus cloudy days, which was about 12%. So I never once heard a portfolio manager say to me, Kabir, the sun made me buy that stock. Right. But it's having an effect. If you want to get a sense of what the market sentiment, just look outside your window. I don't want to boil it down too much you know, and be too reductionist, but it's a good business barometer. The sun is a good business barometer, and it shows you that there are things affecting your subconscious, things that are sort of like working on your gene pool and manifesting your money-making decisions. Huh. You hear that, Alaska? That's why California is more affluent. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, is there such a direct correlation? I mean, are there like hedge funds that are based on the weather? There's certainly trading patterns that are. Some people do uh, trade around the, uh, some people do trade around weather patterns, absolutely. There's one startup fund I know about that's trying to launch money with a trading strategy like this. Look, when when there's a hurricane coming into town, you'll you'll see all the financial news networks like, oh, these are the stocks you should buy. So there are different ways to play the weather. I should say one thing interesting, I brought, one of the leading neuroeconomists, a guy from Stanford University, to Wall Street. And I set up a bunch of meetings with some of the top hedge funds in the world. You know, sometimes you meet with the, like the top hedge funds, there's one or two analysts. I had 25, maybe 30 analysts, billion dollar hedge funds coming to this meeting to meet this one professor and me. 
they realized pretty soon that like, okay, maybe there's not an immediate impact from uh, neuroscience and reading the markets, but almost everyone was asking the same question. Everyone was wanting to know, can we take brain scans of potential candidates when we're hiring them to isolate whether they have risk-taking or uh, risk uh, aversion genes? And I know two of two hedge funds that have already started applying MRI scan, brain scans to hiring candidates. So it's coming, folks. You didn't get personality tests, but there will probably be in the coming future, more people, more funds using brain scans to figure out who they should hire. Interesting. Yeah, we actually had Dr. Paul Zak on the show many years ago. He's a neuroeconomist. Yeah, one, one of the best. One of the best. His research has been really foundational. There's another guy, the guy I brought out of Stanford. His name is Brian Knudsen with a K, K-N, Knudsen. And he studies a lot of stuff that about consumer preference. So a lot of stuff that you may be interested in about like, he did an interesting study about loans, for example. He examined 13,000 pictures on the website of Kiva, which is a, basically a microfinance mm-hmm. website. He analyzed all these pictures and he found that pictures of people who were smiling, they were more likely to get their loans funded by, I guess, people loaning out money on Kiva to the tune of about, I think, five or six bucks. And you know the average loan amounts aren't very big on Kiva, it's about $400. And so the research shows that the part of the brain that activates, again, is a nucleus commons. When someone smiles and you see a positive image of someone, the part of the brain activates is the nucleus commons. You're more likely to maybe loan them out money. So he's doing fascinating research on the connection between smile, facial uh, expressions, and uh, soliciting loans. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. 
Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, back to Kabir Seagal. Let's talk about a little bit of the cognitive biases that we find when dealing with money because money in psychology, we just did a show with Adrian Dorison and she talked about belief systems and money and things like that and psychology and money go hand in hand. There's almost no way to stop the interaction between the two because money is such an intimate thing for people even when it's in business and it's just numbers on a spreadsheet and especially when it's your own. And that unfortunately is when we are the most susceptible to cognitive biases and if you've ever known somebody who gambles a lot, or, or at all, you can always find the biases in their rationalizations for why they're doing it and why people buy things that they want and then rationalize that they need. I would love to hear more about some of the biases that you've come across in your research on the subject. Yeah. Well, this shouldn't be so surprising. It almost seems like common sense that like psychology is involved in financial money making. But, you know, um, Alan Greenspan he, in his book, he was, he was like, I made a big mistake. I didn't realize this. <laughs> it, was, it was almost incomprehensible how one of the smartest economists thought that markets are always rational and people who make financial decisions are always rational. So, you know, one of these biases that constantly manifests itself with my father is the availability bias, or another word for this is the heuristic. My father always plays the lottery. And I say to him, why do you always play the lottery? Um, you know, the chances of you winning are like one in a million, if, if that. He says, well, you know, I see it on the news. They have a big check with some guy winning $5 million. That could be me one day. And I said, well, the odds are not very good because our brain is not equipped to do large statistical observations and so or, or, or probability sets. Instead, it does sort of a mental shortcut. And we start to – the more likely you can remember something – you start to inflate the probability of it, of it actually happening. So the more oftentimes you see someone winning the lottery on the news, you say, oh, that could be me. Mm-hmm. That could be me. And so the availability bias is not obviously not just the money. It's all sorts of things. And the reason is why is that is because, you know, evolutionary, it's like, well, you're going to remember if you're on the savannah hunting for food, if, you know, there's a lion nearby and your friend died as a result, you're going to remember all those bad times that happened. It's kind of like a coping mechanism to survive. 
your memory helps you get through your life. The brain is not equipped, again, to do these large math problems. Another one, I think, is one you probably have, but you probably triumphed over, Jordan. You said you, you, know, you run your own business, and it's extremely irrational, irrational to start your own business. Um, it's the overconfidence bias. And most entrepreneurs will, again, it's, it's sort of a, on the tree of a, the availability bias. They'll say, oh, you know, Uber, uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg can do it. You know, Jordan Harbinger can do it. I can do it. I was like, well, wait a second. You aren't the same as these guys. Every business case is different. And so to paraphrase Steve Jobs, here's to the irrational ones. We do need entrepreneurs to take those irrational sort of crazy risks for their life because most of us are sort of, sort of benefiting at their expense. But it is irrational, and most entrepreneurs are way too overconfident. Eight out of 10 new startups fail in the first uh, 18 months. Most of the Y Combinator companies that, that graduate from Y Combinator and some of these elite startup accelerator programs do not survive. Right. It's, it, so that's almost like, just to put that in perspective for people who don't know what the heck that is, that's like graduating from Harvard after Harvard recruits you and then not being able to get a job afterwards. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. wait, if you came out of Y Combinator, you should survive. So if 80% of startups at large, if you will, are failing, it looks like 93%, and this is an older stat, it's June 2013, 93% of Y Combinator's businesses have failed, which is actually less, less successful. The overconfidence bias. Right. They, like, even with these like harsh odds, people still make the plunge to start their own companies. And it's like, man, like, do you want to do something where you have like a five or a 7% chance of making a success, and yet people sort of are dogging and they go ahead with it. Right, yeah, and the reason, just to put a personal spin on it, the reason I did is because Wall Street was winding down, I was doing mortgage-backed securities, they basically laid everyone off, I had the choice between getting another job I didn't want and working on, a, I guess, a hobby that had since become a business and was starting to make money, which my confidence level was, we can probably make a living doing this, and if not, I have a ton of money saved from Wall Street, whereas... I think a lot of folks, they have it even harder. They're at a nice job, they've got a cushy existence, and then they go, you know what, screw it, I wanna do something else, and they start off. And I think that's why it's so much easier to, to join a startup when you're 24 and you just got out of college and not when you're 44 and you've got two kids waiting for food. Yeah, although, although they say that people who, who start companies now, they're much older. It, we have this sort of idea that their people are kids in the garage and the college dorm starting their own company, but I think the median age of folks starting your company as well into their 30s now. That's good, yeah. I mean, I live in Silicon Valley and I lived in San Francisco and everybody was in their 20s and early 30s generally, mm -hmm. but we are you know, a tiny microcosm of people starting businesses and, and entrepreneurship in general. We just happen to get the most press because we're in Silicon Valley and it's tech, right? Sure. So, and the, sure. so the money's here. So availability bias, which in a nutshell is, well, other people are winning big so I can do it. Yeah, well, availability bias is the more often you can remember something, you start to inflate the probability of it actually happening. Gotcha. The overconfidence bias is kind of, it's taking action toward it, saying like, look, there is 95% chance I won't do it, that the odds are against you, but I do it anyway because I'm better than that. Uh, I'm the hero in my own story. I'll be a triumph. Mm -hmm. You're overconfident in your own talents when it probably won't happen. Yeah. Ironically, both a requirement of entrepreneurs and also something that you should avoid. <laughs> so, Yeah, totally, yeah, totally. Mathematically speaking, you should avoid anyway. <laughs> sure. The biggest bias that has been discovered, and this, is, this really originates with Danny Kahneman's work, who uh, was the only psychologist 
to win the Nobel Prize in economics with his um, co-researcher, they came up with a theory called prospect theory. And that's a fancy way of just saying loss aversion, which is sort of the most well-known and documented cognitive bias. So for example, consider I gave you a coin toss in which you could either lose $20 or win $22. And so you know the payoff is in your favor. And the rational model of human behavior would suggest that you should take this this opportunity should take this bet, but most people would reject this gamble. And that's because uh, Danny Kahneman in his research, he found that when people are given an opportunity, they want to get twice as much in a game before they take that risk. In other words, I would have to offer you $40 for winning and $20 for losing in order for people to get comfortable in taking that bet. So people value losses twice as much as they do gains. And so the evolutionary logic for that is, well, sure, if I lose something, like I can hurt from that, I can suffer from that, you know, like I could die from it. So we tend to value losses far more than our gains. And this has, you know, they've they've studied this in all kinds of different ways. For example, even like uh, on the on the golf greens, for example, they found that when people are are putting for birdie. When you're gonna, you know, go down a stroke, basically that's you're winning something. Uh, and they've compared that to people putting for par. And that, I mean, if you putt for par and you lose, and you lose a shot, that means you go down on the score. And they found that people are much more accurate. People are much more willing to make their shots when they're shooting for par instead of for birdie, because there's more to lose. If you lose a shot on par, you're gonna go down on the scores. So they found that this mechanism. These are all psychological things, like these biases. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to kind of overlay from the beginning part of our conversation is the neuroscience of it. There's a part in our brain. So you can actually do brain scans and isolate it. There's a part in the brain called the amygdala, which is sort of the fear center of the brain, that fires at some of these decisions. So I, if I gave you that opportunity to take a coin toss, I could see, oh, you know, you're not going to take it because your amygdala is firing because you you can win $22 but you can also lose $20. Okay? Now, you can win $40 or lose $20. Well, the amygdala doesn't fire as much because there's more opportunity for gain and it triumphs over the amygdala. So there's actually neurological mechanisms that are happening when we're making these psychological decisions. And this is loss aversion? Loss aversion, correct. I'm not sure if I got all that. So we're we're more likely to avoid loss than we are to go for gain because we we want to avoid pain rather than seek pleasure. You got it. You said it better than I did. You said it better than Danny Kahneman did. You, you should have won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'm on the waiting list for that one. <laughs> no, but that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think there's neurological mechanisms that regulate this, and it really governs a lot of sort of risk taking in the world that you have to make it extremely appetizing for people to take a risk in order to get most people to jump at it. Interesting. And, of course, casinos are kind of masters at this. Yeah, well, casinos are good because, well, they do a lot of things. So, first of all, when you're playing, what do they do? They give you drinks, and so that kind of dulls your sensibility. Then they put pretty women around you, and that activates your nucleus accumbens. They've actually, I mean, in some of these studies, they've shown pictures of of women, and they've asked people to make a financial decision, and people are much more risk-seeking, make a lot more financially risky decisions when they see pretty women around them. And so even looking at traders on Wall Street, they swab the cheeks of traders on Wall Street and, and traders in the London trading pit. And they found that 
testosterone was not only just correlated with market uh, risk, but it was a cause of market risk. They would actually get people to inhale testosterone in their noses, and then they watched their trading performance. And sure enough, people were making like outsized bets at the wazoo. So it shows you that maybe the market performance is really a, a testament to how much testosterone is being manifested on Wall Street. Yeah, because you see the bravado spill over into the real world. Yeah, you got it. Now, getting back to sort of practical terms here, one of the things I found interesting was you'd mentioned how giving gift to somebody is actually a way to control them. Can we dig into that a little bit? Sure. I traveled again to over 25 countries in researching my book, and I found that in every single country I went to, people think about money in almost the same way, in that they think about money as a way to measure and settle debts, measure and settle debts. Just as you think about a mile as a measurement of distance or a kilometer as a measurement of distance, think about money as a way to measure debts. And what I mean by that is every single country has its own peculiar and local way of settling debts. I went to Japan and I was staying with a buddy and I got him some really delicious grapes. These grapes, it was one strand of grapes. They were delicious. $35 for one strand of grapes because uh, they're custom blend and they look like they're massive. And I gave them to him. I said, here you go. This is a present for hosting me. He said, Kabir, I cannot accept this present from you. I said, well, why not? He said, well, I'll never be able to repay you. And he told me in Japanese culture, the word arigato, which means thank you, translates to this difficult burden, this difficult burden. There's another word in Japanese, which is called sumimezen, which means I am so sorry, I cannot accept this. When you go to a Japanese department store, and I'm going to come to America in a second. When you go to a Japanese department store, when you buy a present, they will not let you wrap your own presents. Because if you do a poor job, it will reflect poorly on the department store. <laughs> Interesting. When you go to a Japanese wedding, you have to tie the ribbon on the gift precisely. Because if you give it to the uh, newlyweds and they can easily undo the ribbon, you're implying that you don't think the marriage will last. Valentine's Day. 80% of women buy chocolate for men that they feel personally obligated to, not people who they feel romantically involved with. They call it obligation chocolate, chocolate and giri, obligation chocolate. So why do I bring all this up? Because that's kind of weird and quirky, Japanese culture. Okay. Well, here in America, we also have a more transactional way of dealing with people. You know, my former CEO, Jamie Dimon, you know, CEO of JP Morgan, he keeps a list in his suit pocket. And on that list is basically a favor bank, people who owe him something is on one side of the list. And on the other side, it's just the opposite, people who he owes. So the head of a major bank keeps like a basically a favor bank in his suit pocket. And so it goes to show you that he understands the psychology of gifts, is that when you give a gift to someone, when you give a gift to someone, you're not just wrapping the gift with wrapping paper. You're tying the recipient to an obligation. You're saying that you owe me, buddy, and you will have to remember that. And so even our language is like that. Like, for example, the word thank you. Thank you. The word thank comes from the term think in ancient English. And it basically means, I will remember what you did for me. That's basically what you're saying. And then so you're constantly tying people. It's a constant psychology of who owes me something. And this gets back to like caveman days, because if you 
got something and you caught some big game like a bison and you did not invite your friends to the hunt, well, the day would come when you would be super hungry and they would not invite you. So this idea of reciprocity is such a powerful currency in the world. That's why, yeah, they conquered the city of Troy. How did they do it? They conquered it, not with Brad Pitt, <laughs> you know, but a Trojan horse. Had they had Brad Pitt, though. I mean, had they had Brad Pitt. <laughs> he can get in anyone's heart, right? But no, they opened, the, opened those doors and they let that Trojan horse in, which is basically a gift, an obligation. And so oftentimes we think about gifts as like, is something nice, is something generous, but in many ways, it can be a way to control other people. In Japan, no one asks for cigarettes on the side of the street. No one wants to be held to the account of strangers. It's super difficult. And so, like when you go to a Starbucks here in America, when you pay for your latte and like leave, the relationship is over. But let's say the barista is like, no, 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 it's on me today. You may feel an obligation to go back there in the future because like not paying basically a gift has sustained the relationship. And so if you want to sort of build bonds with people, it's very Machiavellian way of, of thinking about it. You want to have people be in your influence. You have to do them favors. You have to deposit into that social bank account. And this even has historical ramifications because the first type of money that was ever invented, it wasn't paper or gold or coins. It was loans, people loaning out things to each other. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, back to Kabir Seagal. But how does it actually control us, right? I mean, it seems like, do we automatically, you can see in the brain that we feel that sense of obligation? Has that been studied extensively? Yeah, reciprocity has been studied in the brain. And sometimes the insula. So the insula is a part of the brain that activates when you're feeling fear or anxiety. And so there have been some early indications that in gift giving, that the insula activates that you feel more obligated, you're feeling kind of anxiety when someone gives you a gift because you know that there will be a day of reckoning. There's no free lunches. So neurologically, there is like neurological evidence to support that gift giving is a way of creating anxiety. In fact, in some cultures, particularly Native American cultures, people would shame other folks by lavishing them with gifts. There's a ceremony it's called a potlatch. You basically invite all your friends and you say, look, look at you. I'm inviting you to my feast. I'm going to shame you with my generosity. I'm so much more wealthier than you. And you'll never be able to repay me. So gift giving has historically also been a way of shaming other people to hold them under their influence. 
Interesting. Like if you go to a bar and someone like screws you over, I did this once actually. <laughs> there was like a, a fuss about someone had a table or something. We decided to buy them a bottle of liquor and we sent it to their table and they were just shocked. And so we were sort of sending the message that, look, we were arguing over, over something so nebulous. Here's an act of generosity. But I think implicit in that was kind of like, you know, screw you guys. <laughs> like we want to be above this. Yeah. You like making it rain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, yeah, there's actually a money culture that actually comes from uh, ancient African traditions in Nigeria when literally people get buried with money and people then throw money on other people in order to control them and show how much bigger they are in their culture. This comes from the Tiv people in Nigeria. Interesting. Right. So so making it rain has an ancient African connection. Yes. Yes. Look, when you go to a Nigerian wedding, you have to like go up to the bride and groom and like throw money on them. And when people die, you have to bury them with money. And so the idea is that like they're going to be wealthy when they're married and then they're going to take the money with them to the afterlife. I did not see that coming. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, ne- I mean, of all the things that I thought would have ancient roots, making it rain was not one of them. <laughs> wow. Uh, there's different ways of saying thank you in the world. Like the French say merci, basically begging for mercy, symbolically placing yourself and your benefactor's like grace. The best thing you can say to people, if you're looking at the credit of language, when someone does you a favor, you can say thank you, or you can say my pleasure. And my pleasure is a way of reversing it on them. It's saying, oh, it's not a debt. It's a credit that you gave me the um, the favor of doing you a favor. So you kind of reverse it on them. Right. The language of credit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's why don't say thank you. Don't say you're welcome. Say my pleasure. And there's a constant... How many times during the day do you say, yes, thank you, you know, you're welcome? You think about what you're doing with those words. It's almost become this kind of like a polite fiction. But if you can kind of be more artful in how you use the words, you can sort of subtly adjust people's psychology. We're programming you by saying you're welcome and my pleasure. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. Yes. One of the things I talk about in, in one of my keynote talks is, is that money is less efficient than barter, which is essentially debt. And I know you talk about this a little bit in your book as well, debt being the first, kind of the first currency, really. Yeah, so Adam Smith, newsflash. I mean, those of you who've taken economics, Adam Smith, Aristotle, turns out they weren't exactly right when they came up with their theory of money. They said that bartering... I have an apple, you have an orange, let's exchange it. That's bartering. Bartering led to money. And so the anthropologists have gone back. There's a University of Cambridge anthropologist has gone back and she studied this. Actually, a lot of anthropologists have studied this. And they felt, wait, wait a second. There's actually never been a society in the history of the world that's ever existed that has relied on bartering as its principal means of exchange. She says, bartering is what you do with someone that you don't know. If you and I are in a tribe and someone else from another tribe comes over, yeah, we'll barter with them. But within our own tribe, we do favors for each other. We create social obligations. We create debt. And so it goes to show you that debt, social debt, is the first type of currency in the world and probably the most powerful type of currency. So when people talk about what's the most powerful currency in the world, the dollar, the yen, the euro – it's really favors because evolutionary, that's what bonded our societies together is the theory of money comes from social debt. The first types of money that was ever used were, look, look at that. So there was social debt. And then right around you know 4,000 years ago, the ancient Mesopotamia, they started to use financial loan documents. They basically took social debt 
and transfigured it into financial debt. And something very pernicious happens when that happens is you can start to enforce all kinds of crazy things on people. Like for in ancient times, it was illegal to sell your wife or family into slavery unless you were settling a debt. Oh, unless wow. you're settling a debt. And so it goes to show you, like even today, like let's say you have like your kids in a nice school or your kids had to get some healthcare or something. Like the, the right nice thing to do is say, okay, like I'm here for you. But let's say you owe me a bunch of money. Now I can be like kind of a jerk and be like, look, you owe me the money. I'm going to start to enforce this contract on you and tell you not to spend health care on your kids, not to spend a good educational service on your kids. So what happens is when you take a social debt and start to introduce financial obligations onto it, it becomes very awkward, very fast. You're seeing that happening all around the world with you know these protests in Greece around the Euro debt crisis is people are making social demands on other people because there's a financial loan obligation there. You would never do it with your family, but because there's a contract, you're enfor- people are enforcing it now. It, it, that's what always feels so weird and awkward. That's true, right? Anytime we talk about, and we talk about this concept on the show, people are more willing to talk about the details of their sex life than they are about their finances. Yeah, the next time, like Thanksgiving's coming up, after Thanksgiving, meal has been cooked, and if, let's say you're either at your in-laws or friends, like take out your wallet and say, how much do I owe you? You see how awkward it gets really fast. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we call introducing market rights or, you know, rituals of the marketplace into the familial sphere. And so one of the examples I use in my book, when you go out for drinks with a friend, I did sort of a silly experiment. Everyone knows they got to pay for their own round of drinks, but I decided I was not going to. And all of a sudden, it came my turn to cover a round of drinks. And I said, well, I'm not going to do it, guys. They're like, what are you talking about? It, It was a complete gross violation this code of rights we all live by, but you always have to buy your, your round of drinks. Why does everyone know that? Because it's, if you don't do, you'll be ostracized from the community. Yeah, and nobody wants to be ostracized from the bar. You got that right. That's for sure. Now, let's talk about a couple of practical exercises for the audience. I mean, let's talk about a couple of practical exercises here. One of the things I thought was funny that you brought up beforehand is that money is extremely dirty. I think that's hilarious because it's so random, but it's true. And I think most people know it, but the fact is, you know that there's really gross stuff on there through your studies. What is on money besides cocaine? (laughs) Yeah. um, Money is a public safety hazard. They found money circulating in Manhattan. They found 3,000 different microbes on the money involved in acne, staph infections, and pneumonia. In fact, in money circulating, I think in London, they found amounts of E. coli in greater amounts on the money than in public toilets. You always want to wash your hands. I found particularly interesting that, again, money circulating in America, in New York, there's 1.5 billion DNA markers on money. 50% of it was non-human, traces of dogs, horses, even traces of white rhinoceros on money. Wow. Wash your hands, ladies and gentlemen. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Yes, definitely. And you know, what's funny, though, is the other thing we talked about off air is paying with cash. So don't touch money, but pay with cash. Yeah, and that's because you become more conscious of your money usage. So when you, um, again, let's say you you go to Starbucks, you buy your latte or whatever, and you swipe your credit card, there's actually less activation in your anterior insula meaning that you're getting less anxiety, you're getting less pain when you use a credit card. 
your credit card dulls your pain. You don't feel the pain as much. <laughs> right. Dulls the pain of your imminent death from white rhino E. coli. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is you want to, if you spend cash, you feel more pain when you part with your money. And so, but, but the flip side is it's very dirty. So you kind of want to bring a bottle of Purell around with you. you <laughs> Wear go. gloves. Bring your cash gloves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We've talked about the idea of paying with cash before. I usually only recommend it when people have trouble curbing the spend. Mm-hmm. Do you really pay for everything with cash or you use American Express like everybody else on in banking? <laughs> yeah, I use I use credit cards for sure. But look, 85% of transactions in the world are still based in cash. The high, highly cash economy. And that's because, like, look, even places like Germany, Germany has 85 million people, only 10 million credit cards. Because there's kind of weird cultural reasons for that. The word in, for debt in German is schuld, which means like sin or guilt. Yeah, guilt. Yeah, cultural hangups. So in America, we're pretty unique in that there's like, you know, more than two or three credit cards per person um, in here in America. So we we love our credit cards here in America, but we're pretty unique um, in the world. Yeah, geez, at that rate, I've got enough credit cards for the entire city where I went to high school in Germany. <laughs> you probably do. So thanks so much for coming on the show, my man. My pleasure. Interesting stuff. Never saw the gene thing coming. That's pretty cool. Genes influencing your credit score, how you spend money. I mean, I figured your parents were there as an example, but I never saw the nature argument. That's pretty cool. The whole thing of the debt, you know, you're welcome versus my pleasure. Super subtle. Not sure I totally buy into the persuasive aspect of that um, because, you know, yes, reciprocity, but is it really more overpowering? I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. But I think his research is fascinating and nobody can argue that he is not a very, very smart man. And the book was good, Jason. You read the whole thing cover to cover. Yes, I did. I read it in like two sittings. It was really fascinating because if I'm not a big money guy because I got the wrong gene. I don't have the Jordan Harbinger gene. So uh, the money side of it was it was fascinating, but more the history aspect of it, just like going through like the beginnings of money to modern day and then the psychology of money. It's a great read. I, I highly recommend it. So he just hit me up and he said, thank you for the opportunity. And I responded, my pleasure in all caps. You're not going to get me this time, Kabir. Show feedback and guest suggestions. This show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone is a good fit, let us know. Guests at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Kabir on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including his book, Coined. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter. I'm at The Art of Charm. Follow me there or just miss out on life generally. Bootcamp details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance. We're actually sold out several months in advance. So if you're thinking about it, get in touch, get some info, plan ahead. No pressure. We don't do the hard sell. We're sold out already, for God's sake. Subscribe on iTunes, write us a nice review, and of course, check out the blog where we discuss a lot of this stuff even more in depth. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. And don't touch any money, for God's sake, you filthy animal. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 